Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today, I'm here with Adam Parker. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Adam is the CEO and founder of Trivariate Research LP. He brings 20 years of experience in equities, including four years on the buy side and 18 years on the sell side to Trivariate Research. Prior to that, he was the founder and led portfolio manager, Trivariate Capital Equity Longshored Hedge Fund. And I heard you on Barry Ritholtz's podcast. And just thought it was a fascinating conversation, and you were nice enough to join us today. So thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for saying so. So you talk about this in your conversation with Barry, initially how the market on the street has changed fairly dramatically in terms of the human capital side and the skill sets that are involved. Your own background as a statistician, and I believe it was kind of within the healthcare field originally, and you mentioned this at the end of the show, how you encourage people who are aspiring to work on the street to get computer science degrees, statistician degrees, et cetera. Can you maybe talk through your experience of the arc of your professional development and how much the Wall Street world has changed from what it was, call it, in the 90s versus today in terms of how much more quant-oriented it is? Yeah, sure. You know, Thanks for that question. Yeah, I, I have a PhD in statistics. You know, it wasn't the most popular thing to major in the 90s. It took me maybe 15 days to tell my now wife that that was my thing. You know, I used to just let her think I had an MBA because it sounded much more digestible. So things have changed a lot in the last 25 years. And now, you know, every school's got a statistics and data science part, a department, and being a statistician is considered cool. And trust me, it was not back in the day. What does that mean in practice? You know, I think in practice it means 
people were downloading, you know, a few data points in Excel and they were doing some manipulation and reaching some investment conclusions. And so the analytical rigor required to do that in the 90s, you know, was pretty light. You know, our sort of edge as we think about our business, you know, we sold research to big asset managers and, and hedge funds. We sell it to registered investment advisors. We sell it directly to corporate. Our edge is really our database. So what does that mean? It means every day for the top 3,000 U.S. equities, we download hundreds of pieces of information. You know, prices, obviously, but things from the income statement or the balance sheet or the cash flow statement or other accounting metrics, sentiment metrics, et cetera, right? And then we compute several hundred and we store that every day back for thousands of days, you know, 25, 30 years, in some cases longer. So the skills required to work now are Python programming, you know, SQL skills, all of the computation we do is on Microsoft Azure. So it's a totally different environment. And I think anybody who wants this kind of career really has to be, you know, elite at programming. In fact, even my firm, the first thing we do is give people a Python test. So if they can't pass it, it really, even though it's not a programming job per se, if they can't really code and they can't do the research. And so it's kind of a waste of time to, to engage them, you know, that different. That's yeah, it's very different and interesting. That's part of your application process. I want to get, you know, your, your conversation with Barry, there were moments where it was very technical, way over my head. Could you maybe just kind of help us tease out buy side versus sell side versus independent research and how that research analyst community has changed over the last 20, 30 years? Sure. I mean, that's a pretty broad question. So, you know, if I don't answer that the way you want in the beginning, but, you know, sandpaper the furniture, so to speak. But, um, you know, I think in the past, you know, the buy side was much more read a 10K, maybe, you know, listen to an analyst call do some, you know, call to competitors and come up with a judgment about the fundamentals of, of the business. I think now it tends to be more complex. A lot of money is run passively. A lot of money is run in so-called pods, which are firms where the analysts are required to generate just a little bit of performance, but then there's risk management folks running with a huge exposure in the back room. You know, you probably heard these firms, Citadel and Millennium and those kind of firms where they're running huge amounts of gross exposure. And so risk management has become a much more complex issue. So our one of the niches we traffic in and we call risk management, we have a lot of firms send us their portfolio to do bespoke risk work. You know, I, I guess the way I think about it is if risk didn't change, anyone can do risk management, right? So I think people got much more complex as data is more readily accessible and easier to download and the like. And so I think that the buy side is more migrated from an alpha job to a combination of alpha and risk. I mean, that's probably true to a lesser extent, but also true on the sell side. But give me, toggle me here. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's helpful. I think for people who are in the ultra high net worth individual or family officer RIA world who didn't necessarily come from a bulge bracket or wirehouse Wall Street gig, don't necessarily understand some of the dynamics that impact research analysts internally at some of these larger firms. And your independence is is one of the hallmarks of your research. Can you maybe talk through the experience you had kind of at a big shop on the street versus kind of what you're doing today and, and how that impacts your notes and analysis? For sure. Look, I mean, I was lucky enough that when I was an analyst covering uh, stocks, I worked at an independent research firm called Stanford Bernstein that later got bought by a larger firm called Alliance Bernstein, which now is headquartered in, in Nashville. But 
it, it, you know, was an independent firm. So we didn't have banking. And I think we sort of uh, liked the fact that we could be somewhat critical of the companies and, you know, sort of were reared to think like a CEO. So am I a good steward of capital? How do I think about shareholder returns? How do I get a higher multiple, you know, higher, higher P ratio over time? And so I, I was kind of reared in that world. And then I left to become the chief U.S. equity strategist and write quantitative research at Morgan Stanley. And obviously that, you know, number one business, the world in equities and a lot of bigger footprint. And so I think there, the pressures were different for sure. You know, you have a massive amount of assets under management, a huge, the biggest private wealth network. And my job became a little bit more, I'd say, figureheadish. You know, in my last whole year there, I spoke at 44 conferences around the world and I had a full-time person who went to Yale, whose whole job was to make me my PowerPoint presentation. She was the most important person to work for me. And uh, I traveled 30 weeks a year. So it was a lot. And the travel was not to Atlanta. It was to Jakarta, Miami, and London in one right. So, you know, it was just a bigger figurehead sort of public facing job. I think now it's obviously far different, right? You know, people hire our boutique firm to do research, to do bespoke risk work, to do custom analysis, and they're getting me and my small team. So, you know, I think about it, think about it this way. Like if you hired an accounting firm, right, you could hire like a big five firm. You would pay higher fees and get somebody super junior actually on your account. For us, we're the opposite, right? You're, you're getting, you know, the experienced people to do the work at, at a lower fee. And so that's our pitch that I think works pretty well, you know, in that two by two grid. You want high fees, low fees. You want experienced people or inexperienced people. I think we're checking the right quadrant. And I think that's why the business has been growing quite well, you know, since we initiated it. Let's go back to the concept of risk management. I think risk is, is misunderstood by a lot of folks that I speak with within my world as, volatility versus permanent loss of capital or, or value destruction. Can you maybe talk through a fact pattern that you see often if somebody, a separately managed account or a family and RA were to come to you with a portfolio construction allocation, how you think about risk and how you analyze the positions that they have within any given portfolio? Sure. Not, you know, this could be something that I could like teach a semester class on. So giving you like a 90 second answer is a little bit tricky. I always think of that Mark Twain line of like, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. And you're asking me for the short, the short letter, which is challenging. But I suffice to say that within equities or even across a whole, you know, high net individual, their whole portfolio, there's obviously a number of considerations. But when we think about risk, usually I mean specifically just to the U.S. equity market. And I also don't really mean exogenous shocks that are unforecastable. So sure, I can you know, chat with you about the imminent risk of China and Taiwan or other things that people might view as risk, but I don't mean those. I mean risk to the exposure in the stocks you own. And so we're pretty quantitative about saying, hey, what exposures do you have? Do you have any statistically significant risk above and beyond your equity market exposure to the dollar strengthening, to rates or perceptions about rates, obviously a big topic in the last 18 months, or inflation? Obviously, or to style, right? Growth versus value. If you were a growth investor, you did also for 10 years and you got killed this year. So that's a risk, right? That's an exposure we can measure. We can have a discussion about how willing you are to have that exposure. Same thing with large cap versus small. So if the Dow beats the Russell by 20% in one year and you were loaded in mega cap stocks, yeah, you, you did well, but you probably had a risk you didn't know about, right? Or you had a you had a bet on a factor bet, people call it, right? So I think it really depends on the portfolio positioning, but all of our work is designed to help people think through their portfolio risk with inequities. And I think an important distinction there, just to give you kind of an example, real-time example of like, if risk didn't change, anyone can do it. Think about COVID, right? So 
the very beginning phases of COVID, if you had exposures to, if you didn't, if you, you know, I think about it long short because we have clients that are hedge funds and also on only, but anyone who is short anything related to reopening got killed right after the Pfizer vaccine announcement, right? So I was running a small hedge fund at the time. We did okay because we were really concerned about this issue. In fact, I wrote a letter to my investors in 2020 summer saying, how could Zoom be worth more than Morgan Stanley plus Goldman Sachs combined? That seems one of the biggest dislocations I've seen in my career. I am really avoiding these work from home stocks. And we, we looked at the, we created a basket of work from home stocks with the correlation of every stock to work from home versus reopening and made sure we weren't all sides on it. If you were short reopening, I could name tickers you've never heard of, you know, EPR to the entertainment REIT that had exposed to AMC theaters on the problem. You got killed. The stocks went from 10 to 15 in one minute the day of the vaccine announcement. So I think those are subtle risks within the equity market that we sort of try to help our investors think through to make sure they're comfortable with their exposures. I'm not sure I answered your question because I think you maybe meant more holistically. How do you think about geopolitical versus others or asset class risk? We do that too, but my primary expertise is exposures within the U.S. equity market. No, that's exactly what I was hoping for. And so let's let's kind of piggyback on top of it and take it to the next step. I mean, the past few months have seen you know a huge drawdown in the market. There's been interest rate risk, inflation, geopolitical issues. When you're looking at portfolios today, or when you're talking to clients, what are the biggest risks that you're seeing today? You know, I think there's a twofold. I mean, the generic high level answer to your question are obviously going to be around corporate earnings and around quantitative tightening. So that, you know, if I think about the value of the market, I guess really simply, if somebody's not a stock person, there's the earnings and there's price they're willing to pay for the earnings. And probably both of them are directionally at risk here. You know, we had a market rally in July after a pretty bad Q2. And so the rally, what's interesting about, and you know this well, when you have a rally, people start feeling better, right? That near-term price momentum, the quant guys call it, you know, market up makes you feel better. So all of a sudden, there was a narrative forming. Hey, maybe earnings weren't that bad. Hey, the last PPI looked a little bit less negative than the previous one. Hey, maybe the Federal Reserve's getting a little more dovish. And so they're starting to get, you know, this cocktail was forming of markets up. There are things that make me feel better. And I think you got some believers again that maybe the bottom was in. Uh, my own view differs from that. You know, I, I, in that. You know, I think the corporate earnings are way too high. My, my, my story I'm telling myself is that, you know, the perception of interest rates was incredibly anticipatory of the actual beginning of the rate rise. So people, if you look at something called the Fed Fund Futures, which is people's perception about rates, it started rocketing up in the fall of 21, but the Fed didn't move to what, March of this year. So the idea that we looked at July earnings, which, you know, basically by and large on rounding year are corporate results from April 1st to June 30th. The idea this first interest rate hike in mid-March totally impacted the earnings sort of and, and fully accounted for it seems a little, you know, dismissive to me. And so I think there could be a lagged impact between the, the, you know, the lift off in the Fed and what it does for corporate earnings over the next few quarters. If you said, all right, I don't get that. I'm not as Fed speak. It's gobbledygook to me. Think about it this way. Look at the consumer stock in the market over a 20, 30 year time frame. Typically they grow the revenue six, seven percent per year. The trailing 12-month revenue has been between 20 and 30. Okay, The companies are over-earning. And, and why? Because people pulled forward demand because of COVID and the recovery, because of working from home. And so you're going to see a you know material slowdown in the corporate earnings. And so my sense is that the numbers are at risk. To put some numbers around it, this is a kind of a meaningless number to people, but the bottom-up 
sell-side analysts have an estimate for $245 in S&P earnings. The S&P is at 39.36 last. So that 3,936 S&P trades that is based on projected earnings of 245. We think, we think the real number, actually 243 was the last number. I think the real numbers are lower, like two. So I think the question will be, how does the market act as the earnings are being reset? How does it act when the Fed remains hawkish? And, and the risk reward, in my mind, skewed a little bit to the negative on those two things. But we can talk more about the interest rate environment if you want, but I'll pause there. No, I mean, let's kind of go where, where I think most people are focused on, which is inflation and interest rate risk. You know, the yeah. Fed was in Jackson Hole last week. You know, they killed any kind of concept that there would be a dovish path forward. You know, they were very resolute with the fact that they're going to hammer down inflation, even if it means we go into a recessionary environment. I mean, what are your thoughts about that in the context of the market and, and how to kind of play this whole environment? Sure. I mean, look, there's things we know and things we don't. What I've learned is every big firm has hockey rinks, rinks full of people who memorize what everyone in the Fed is doing, and they're not right or they're not wrong. They don't know what they're saying. And look, I worked by Maureen Stanley with an economist who had written papers with Bernanke, and he was still not always good at forecasting what the Fed was going to do. So the idea that all these talking at think of, let me just tell you something, they don't know what they're saying. Okay, they don't, they're not right. They don't know. Okay, here's what we do know. We know that CPI, right, the super price index that everyone talks about, the biggest component is something called owner's equivalent rent. And when rents go up, it pressures the CPI higher. So here's what's going on right now. So it's a sort of an anomalous regime, right? The 30-year fixed mortgage rolled a lot. And even though maybe this isn't obvious to people, 90% of the people who have mortgages have a 30-year, okay? Home prices are still elevated in most regions. We've seen some softening at the peak at certain MSAs, a little bit less in the southeast and 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 and. and Suburban versus urban. But so if you're a new home buyer, what, wow, what's going on? I'm in the wrong quadrant of the two by two grid. To use that analogy again, right? I have high prices and high borrowing costs. I need one of those things to crack for me to get in. I either need 30 or 50 to come in so my borrowing costs come down or I need prices to roll over so I don't know as much. So what are they doing? Well, they're renting more. So I just got back from a conference Wednesday with like these 30 or 40 big hitters in the real estate industry. You know, I own nine million feet here. I know it's Every one of them is still taking pricing up between a half and 1% per month in the rental market. So why does it matter to an equity guy? Well, because the CPI is not going to roll over anytime soon. Okay. It's, it's a third of it is being pressured upward by this anomalous regime we're in. Sure, you get rollover in, in certain areas or see softening in certain areas, but the idea we can get a 2% CPI anytime soon is silly. So you look, if I were running the Fed, what I would say is, Hey, look, we ran. Well below a 2% CPI per, per year, but we convinced you guys that we had deflation under control and the market rip. So, hey, what, you know what? We're going to run above 2% CPI for a long time, but we're going to take the, the edge off inflation and things could be fine. And if they communicated that, I think that'd be great, but I don't think they will. This is a group of people who were buying billions and billions of dollars of mortgage backed securities while the housing market was on fire in every MSA in America, even earlier this year. So what are they, I think they're going to do, I think they're going to stay hawkish, man. There's a quantitative tightening coming with the balance sheet later this year. They're going to stay hawkish, reacting to an elevated CPI. And I don't think that's great for multiples while that's happening. So I, I'm, I, you know, I, in the pocket here, in a six month view, I, I think the earnings need to get reset. And I think the multiple stays a little bit pressured because of the Fed. I mean, that's my guess. And I, I, I think it's based on the CPI and the owner's equivalent rent, but I have no idea 
what the heck the Fed's thinking other than that. I mean, yeah, I don't think anybody does, but I, I, I tend to agree yeah. with you. I think they're terrified of inflation, especially given the age range of the folks that are making these calls based on the experience that happened in the 70s in the U.S. So they're going to be very focused but they on should it. Be, but they should, be terrified. they should be terrified of deflation, right? Because wait, we always thought when there was deflation, fear, ah, oh, man, they want inflation. That They raised the front end, no problem, right? So they're in this weird situation now where they've got the curve inverted, right? The two-year yields above the five years, above the 10-year, because people now think that they're going to have to raise the front end to the point they create a recession. So, you know, that's usually not a positive harbinger. There's only been five periods of an inverted curve in the last half century that have lasted for one year or longer. And, you know, the path run right now, you know, makes me think that's possible. So, I, you know, I don't think that's a great cocktail. No, I'm, I'm, I want to be wary of sounding too cautious to the crowd. You know, I spent most of the last cycle being very bullish on equities, and I've learned a couple things. One is you always, always sound dumber when you're bullish. Okay? So it's really easy to sound intelligent when you're bearish because you talk about all kinds of worrisome stuff. And, it, and so I'm, I'm not like locked in some bear den. I just think the thing at high level, earnings are probably at risk and the multiples at risk. So it's probably not the greatest time to say, ah, I have the all clear signal it feels a little bit more 10% up, 10% down. Could be either. I have no idea. So let me focus on alpha capability, find industries and sectors that I think have above average estimate capability. So a lot of what I do with people is think through that as opposed to, you know, through the market call. But, you know, you asked about the bigger issues, and I think they're around, you know, the Fed and they're around corporate mm-hmm. earnings. Well, that's where I was going to go next is industry sectors, best ideas. I mean, what are you, what are you talking to clients about right now about places that, I mean, without giving a recommendation, obviously, but things that are interesting or exciting that you're digging into. Yeah, sure. No, we spent a lot of our time on that and on those subject areas. You know, I guess if I think out like long term, like, you know, like I do in my personal life or if I were advising, you know, you know, high net worth individual client and I was thinking about just their equity portion, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the S&P 500 was up 5% per year for the next decade. I mean, the long-term average has been a little bit above that, six to eight percent, because you have kind of a three to four percent earnings growth organically. You get about a one percent boost because the S and P throws out thirty bad companies and adds thirty good companies every year, and there's a pretty big cumulative impact in that managed index. And what do you have? Like a little bit less than a two percent dividend. You get a two percent net buyback. So you've had kind of six to eight percent total return for the market. Probably come come a little bit above that. You know, we had twenty-seven last year. We're down what seventeen this year, but whatever. I think over the long term, you get five six percent. So I want some equity exposure. I certainly want that more than the long end of the curve. But I wouldn't be shocked if in that same 10-year time frame, energy, aluminum, and copper were up 15 to 20% per year. Because I think we have sort of structural demand growth in the supply, uh, greater than supply growth environment. And uh, we've seen some dislocations through the policy and other things that could make us short. So we've been pitching energy as our top sector since we started the business you know, 16, 17 months ago. Obviously, that hasn't worked the last few weeks, but, you know, since inception has been, you know, the only thing you really needed to own. And I, I still like it a lot. And I, I think investors should think through how to get exposure to particularly copper, aluminum, and, you know, where I think you think those will be good industries. Yeah. I mean, your energy call crushed it, right? I mean, obviously oil has been down the last, I think, week or so, and, and energy hasn't performed great recently. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah. over the last 12, 18 months, it's been unbelievable, best performing sector across the entire market. And the yeah. conversation you had with Barry, I completely agree with in terms of the demand. I think the market and the everyday investor really underestimates this concept of of what the demand's going to be in the emerging market 
and some of these frontier markets and even, you know, domestically, honestly, in my experience and opinion, they like, once you give people a quality of life, you can't walk it back. And it's just, you can raise prices on them. I think it's very elastic. So I totally agree. And that's true for copper and other stuff too, right? Look at, look at the climate change and how hot it's been in certain areas, right? So imagine you finally got enough wealth to afford an air conditioner. Okay. So, and, and I'm talking about in Southern Europe, the Southern United States, although pretty much America gets hot in this, you know, Africa, India, we're still 550 million people defecate in the streets in India. So they think about over time, the, the GDP growth and what that can mean for certain basic, you know, necessities. I mean, demand growth will be very strong. And I don't think people who get to this point care about some ESG or they don't know what that means. And so, they're going to want it. You know, the same way a BMW is better than a rickshaw and air conditioner is better than a fan. Okay. And so I think demand will be sustained for a long time for things that, that obviously that includes copper and, and, and other things. And, you know, as we pushed this argument, we got kind of two sets of pushback, right? One was, I get, I get from certain large asset managers, they're not articulating it this way, but in essence, what they're saying is, the specter of us asset gathering under this marketing label ESG is far greater than any alpha we could generate from energy, so we're out. Okay, that affects 10, 10, 10 funds. For the rest of the world, I was sometimes sure people say, Adam, the terminal value of oil is zero. And this was what you just got at a second ago with demand, and that's where I want to give you some data. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club Podcast for more information and to sign up today. Right now, around 16% of all new vehicle sales are either EV or hybrid. Of the installed beach vehicles, it's about 8%. It's a little less left net globally. Those are U.S. numbers. So if you think about that, a car is born and then it dies. It lasts for between 11 and 13 years, depending on the data source you use. So it, it lasts for a long time. And so just on today's numbers, peak oil demand will be somewhere around 2032 to 2030. Peak demand. So demand will grow every year from now to 2032 to 2034. Most of the stuff that you read about, which seems, and I'm not, I'm, I'm just trying to give you facts. I'm not talking politics. But most stuff you read about, about, you know, carbon footprint reductions for corporates are mostly accomplished through carbon credits or carbon offsets, they call it, right? So, hey, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a neutral company in 2050. What does that really mean? It means I'm going to be, you know, using a ton of energy and then I'm going to build some tree somewhere else as an offset. So like a lot of the data people thought was gaining steam about demand reduction is just a misnomer. I, I think the terminal value of oil. It is, it is, it's probably zero, but it's probably 150 to 200 years from now or something really far out. So I, I think people are very dismissive about demand. Do you think ESG is so, just a marketing ploy to get AUM? I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Generally, I mean, I think it sounds good. And, and, and look, I could take my own experience, right? You had a period. We wrote a note in, in June of 2001 called ESG ETFs, 49% QQQ, 49% SPX, 2% ESG. I mean, we're being a little tongue-in-cheek, but we're basically saying these are closet cues, and and that worked because as as the big guys were uh, check was outperforming, people thought fantastic. I'm good for the world. I'm ESG, and I'm also making money. Win-win-win. Then 
right? Energy outperforms by 90% the queues over a six-month stretch. All of a sudden, firms we're talking to are saying, hey, Adam, you know, we're actually experimenting with changing um, the way our requirements. We used to have a, a MSCI sustainability score. We needed a certain level in order that, for that to be a security we'd buy. Now we're looking at changing sustainability. As long as you're improving, that could be good. Why? Because when, you know, lagging sucks and nobody wants ESG in their portfolio if it lags, right? So look, I'm willing to believe that there's certain things, particularly the G part, which I think most institutional investors have cared about for years. G is governance, right? You don't want a bad governance. You want a good board. You want them to hold people accountable. You want them to be stewards of capital. You want them to get a higher multiple. That's governance. Of course, that makes sense, right? But you know, I think a lot of things are tougher to measure, particularly on the ENS part. Like, I don't know, is your company that you work at, what is your environmental footprint? I mean, you have no idea. I, mean, I don't mean to answer that question. I'm saying those things are tough to answer and challenge. And I think the F data by far is the least rigorous and the least accurate for its forecasting. So I'm not saying don't do good for the world. Of course you should. I, I don't want anyone to misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm just saying when it comes to investing, the EFG, ETF do not provide you a ESG factor exposure. They, they provided you half Qs and half S and P. The sectors industries you're most bearish on right now? Can I give you one other I like besides energy materials before we go bearish? Yeah, no, let's go, let's go where you like, sure. No, just because I didn't want you to think it was that, it was that or bust, you know? I mean, because in the S&P, energy and metals are only like 70% of the total. So, you know, it's hard to chop wood. I really think that we wrote a big note on this last week, actually, on the healthcare industry. And what's interesting is the healthcare sector has never been one of the best two performing sectors when the markets recovered in a new cycle in the last quarter century. Most frequently, tech or discretionary has led. That probably resonates with most of the listeners. But I've been sort of thinking, and, and this year, healthcare has gotten slaughtered, right? I earned in the last 18 months. Basically, it's relatively done okay. And we started comparing, you know, portfolio strategy, looking at the various industries with healthcare, comparing to what we think are industry and comparable set. And we see lots of opportunity, right? So if you're someone who said, you know what, I think we're going back to growth working and hyper growth working. I'm not one of those people. But if you were, I could see owning some profitless biotech. And we tell people short profitless software against it. You get rid of that hyper growth factor. So if art gets killed or ripped, you're not involved. You're just saying the innovation from biotech is probably overly discounted. You know, people would say, and this may be a technical for some of your crowd, but like, when interest rates rise, it affects businesses where a lot of the value is in the future, the so-called terminal value, right? And so a lot of these profitless software businesses in biotech, a lot of their value is today, it's in the future. That's what they look like. They traded mapped in multiples today. So our view is long biotech short the software because the software company, it's unclear to me everyone needs all the software they provide, but I'm willing to bet something will be safe and effective in the pipeline again. So that's one sort of portfolio strategy. I want some growth exposure, but I don't want to be crazy. So long biotech short software. We noticed within biotech, by the way, and this is an interesting mythbuster point, a lot of these biotech companies have what's called a negative enterprise value. What does that mean? They have a market cap that's actually less than the cash on the balance sheet. The market's basically saying, not only it, you work less than your cash, you're going to basically, you know, piss it away for lack of a better term, right? So it's already in the price. We actually noticed that those companies, on average, the market is right. And you don't want to look at it as the value that the market cap's 300 million, they're 400 million of cash. You actually want to avoid those companies. So we tell people actually in specific own biotech that, that has positive enterprise value because that tends to do better. So it's a little nuanced, but technical. The second thing we like a lot is pharmaceuticals. We compare sort of high dividend yielding defensive pharma, the J&J, the world, 
lilies of the world to comparable stocks in staples, you know, Pepsi and et cetera. And we think they have about the same dividend yield, higher revenue growth and are way cheaper. So in defensive, sort of classic defensive sectors, we kind of recommending pharma over staples. And then the third thing is in services. We really like healthcare services. Anyone who's got their own small business can tell you that they have pricing power over you. For us in New York, where I live, our vendor is a company called United Health. If anyone has a computer in front of them, type in UNH stock price, and it should be pretty bottom left to upper right. Why? Because they have pricing power. Okay. They have pricing power. For me, they take pricing up on my business 9% per year. I probably won't switch, right? So they grow above GDP. They have pricing power. And so when I compare their consumer services or other services that have been massively over-earning, they look attractive. So I'll sum up this point on healthcare by saying, when I think about portfolio strategy, I'm basically saying, hey, I'll take biotech, you can have software. I'll take pharma, you can have staples. And I'll take healthcare services and you have consumer services and let's meet in a year or two and see how we did. So that's a lot of how I think about portfolio strategy, sort of comparable to other parts of the index. So being very distinct, I'll say, we like energy, metals, and healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I've got a buddy in town who runs a small biotech hedge fund, and he's gotten slaughtered. I mean, it's just been ugly. But he's pitching it as right. now. Now is the time, right? Like, there's going to be a ton of innovation, a lot of M and A. These bigger shops don't have in-house R and D any longer, and so they're going to go buy up some of these small microcap companies. I mean, that's the pitch. I, I don't know the, anything about it. My but. guess is that he did incredibly well prior to that, right? Because a lot of things were off. I mean. One of the things I know we, we do a lot of is the concept called available alpha, which I don't get too quantity for your crowd, but if you have some, some people who like that stuff, then, you know, we can always, you know, they can follow up with me. But basically we look at how much of the average stocks return we can explain from macro factors and what's left over. We say is company specific or idiosyncratic, right? And so for years, everyone thought biotech was super idiosyncratic. I don't care about the macro because I'm going to figure out drug safer effective and it doesn't matter what's happening with the economy or politics or anything. It's just about what the drug safer effective. Well, what our work shows in the last year, biotech has been more than 50% of macro call. And so for somebody to come up to me and say, Hey, Adam, you know, you know, you, I don't really do want to care what you think because I'm a bottom stock picker. Now my rap is a little bit more. I push back a little bit more. And I feel like you feel like an idiot when you say that. Like, don't you're trying to gather assets. Don't tell people I'm a cold blooded bottom up stock picker. I don't do any strategy or mac, macro quantities. I can explain more than half the biotech stocks returns from macro factors. Why? Because when interest rates and the perceptions of interest rates rose, the valuation got creamed, right? So I, I think, you know, part of a biotech call without the short software, which is I'm recommending, part of the long magic only call would be you think the Fed gets dovish. And so your guy will be right if the Fed gets dovish, and he probably won't be that right if they don't. And I don't think they will in the next few months. Or- <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. It's been, it's been a yeah. long road to yeah. hoe for them, so... Well, and let's go kind of, let's go to the other side of the spectrum. You know, what are some industry sectors that you're... You're bearish on staying away from. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the uh, two or three areas that I'm most cautious on, you know, in no particular, well, I'll, I'll go first with industrials. So part of our framework is relative estimate achievability. Are the numbers embedded in the consensus belt relatively more achievable or not? I think mostly the numbers are way too high, as I alluded to. But in particular, a lot of industrial companies, machinery and capital goods have pretty optimistic estimates embedded in consensus for next year, double-digit earnings growth. And I worry that those numbers are way too high. Right? We've seen the broadly most macro gauges and indicators have slowed this year. A lot of these guys have currency problems, they have wage pressure problems, they have rising input costs, and yet the estimates are, are pretty aggressive. So I, I think that's an area where 
I kind of like that long energy metal short industrials kind of pair trade. If China collapses, maybe they all go down. If China rips, they all go up. But I'm kind of hedged a little. And I think the estimate achievability is far better. The analysts have a big decline in earnings estimates for energy and metals in 2023 in the numbers, but they have a big increase in industrial. And I think that's incongruous. So particularly machinery and capital goods. The second area that I'm relatively cautious on, I alluded to a little bit, is staples. But, you know, to me, like, I get why people own them if you're worried, you're, you know, they, they, they generally do better. But there's these stocks like Pepsi. I'll just pick one. I mean, where it's a great company. I mean, I, I'm not saying that, but, you know, it trades at 27 times slower and it has input pro- co- problems, you know, it has substitution problems, it has dollar problems, it has wage problems, it over earning, it has 70 percent free cash flow. Like, I, I don't want to, you know, whatever. I'm just picking one example. When I was at, my, when we had our hedge fund a couple of years ago, we were short, you know, a lot of these things that had like over earning from COVID, right? Like plot these companies, like you probably have, where, where, I forgot, where do you live? You live in Tennessee? No. N- Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. Tennessee. All right. I got it right. And I made the Elijah Burstein reference correct. Um, yeah, you did. And you got, well. and, and okay. healthcare. So. Oh, good. Yeah. We're doing well. That was all an accident. But, you know, I was noticing you could look at these stocks like Traeger, the Tigger's Cook or Weber. And basically, these guys got on their conference call, and they basically said, every American already bought one of the things that we sell, and we're not going to buy one for another one or two years, right? Because during COVID, everyone upped their game and got a trigger in the weather, right? So there was just a lot of hold forward in demand. That's my point, and I think a lot of the staples are over-earning, right? And I made that point earlier. If your long-term revenue growth was six, you just grew 20. You think 20 is the new number, or you think you're trending back to six? I mean, I don't think you have to be a you know, genius to figure that out. And then the last area that I've kind of long been somewhat negative on is is financials and banks in particular. And I get some pushback on that because I could see why people want to own value stocks, but banks have, you know, what would make me want to own one of the big banks and hold it safely for five or 10 years would be a CEO who came on and said, I am aggressively using technology to replace people. I'm closing 30% of my branches. I'm firing all these overpaid people who don't do anything. And I don't have to make a purely rate call. Our quant work shows the pairwise correlation of banks, meaning the stocks trading like each other, has gone from 0.2 to 0.7. They all trade alike. They're all a levered call in the interest rate cycle. And I don't believe in that. I don't, I don't think we're going to get like a huge backup in the 10 years. So they're borrowing and lending and capitalizing on the spread. That seems really unlikely. So they're cheap. Yeah, but they're cheap for a reason. And the reason is they suck. Okay. So I don't, I don't, I'm not bold up on the banks. That's not my thing. You know, I look at JP Morgan. I'm like, great. You're building like a gazillion dollar new building on 49th and Park. So like you're doing the opposite of what I want. I want you to fire people who don't do anything and close branches. So I'm just more cautious. We, we've been, we highlighted in our work this year, one called Signature Bank SBNY. Why did I highlight that one? You're going to laugh at this because. And I wrote this in my year hand outlook. We've reiterated it in our monthly pack every month. I'm like, I don't know. It has 17 buys, zero holds, and zero sells. So any bank that has the ticker New York in it and everyone loves is probably not a good investment idea. I don't, I don't have to get much more complicated than that. You know, why would everyone love a bank? It doesn't make any sense. Is it, is it all about the Fed or are there other catalysts to the upside or downside? I think with the bank, it's, it's mostly about interest rates and the perception of rate and and expense control. And, you know, the other thing that happened in this environment, you know, I don't know how much you got down when it's in Tennessee. And, and I think you have actually, you know, I'll give you a story in a second, a Tennessee story. Who knew I had so many, but is, is wage inflation, which is, 
you know, most of the banks, if you call around, they had to pick the first year comp up meaningfully this past year with a tight job environment, right? Like, like most. So, so you had like 20, 25% creases for college grad. Well, that's like a one week street. They're not going to come out this year and say, they were cutting first year college students down, right? They might hire less. So I think their cost grew more than people thought. So people got really excited. August of August 5th, 2020 was the low on the 10 year yield. The price of the tangible book expanded a ton, anticipating that the tangible book would actually grow a ton following it. It didn't grow a ton. So the, you know, you got this recovery that, that I think was, you know, optimistic. You know, so for me, like I held more than for a long time because I worked there. I told it, I told it a few months ago. I'm like, I don't see how. And I think it's a good company with great people. A lot of my friends are there. I just say it was just hard for me to justify owning anything. And I think that's one of the best ones. But these other things that are just purely mechanical, borrow, lend, capitalize, and the spread, like NIM, interest expense, loan growth, I don't think they're going to be great cocktails to beat the market in the long term. Uh, but let me give you my Tennessee story. So I was listening to a CEO who, and I think this is a really important, underappreciated market point. The CEO was saying that he has 25% of the employees in America and 75% outside of the U.S. And he said, interestingly, all of my absenteeism and all of my wage pressure is in the U.S. And he was talking about Memphis, which I know is a far away, both literally and figuratively from Nashville. But, you know, basically these guys had a union contract in a factory for 13 bucks an hour. Terrible absenteeism. Everyone said they had COVID. It was, you know, somehow 27% of the employees said they had COVID, which would be statistically impossible based on government data. And, and to terrible absenteeism, right? And wages erasing to 14, 15, 17 an hour, way above the union contracted rate, which no CEO wants to do and still is having problems. Yet in Mexico, Vietnam and Poland, where the other three major manufacturing facilities were 98% people were attending, you know, no wage pressure. So the businesses are really trying to move employees outside the U.S. We have this weird kind of globalization, deglobalization thing going on where I want the IP in the U.S. because I don't want anyone to steal it, but I want the factory workers outside the U.S. because they damn show up for work and don't complain and, and do stuff at wages that aren't inflating massively. So I think a key investing debate to be one, can you hold your margins a little bit higher or do you have less margin pressure if you, if you have non-U.S. employee base? And then, you know, you know or, or two, like where I, so I think the banks had more wage issues, right? Some of the manufacturing companies, probably industrial that did a little better, had more non-US. Maybe that helped them a little. And then when do we see wage inflation peak and roll over? I've seen some signs of it softening, but I think it's going to take through bonus season in January and other things to start seeing the real air come out of the wage. And I have that problem too. I'm a small business hiring guys with computer science degrees. And let me tell you, that's, that's a hot area to find people. Best call you ever made. Best call you ever made in your career. Oh boy. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a good story. I've had a couple of lucky things in like private investment, you know, a couple of, I had one 25 X or in two years, uh, which is all private, but I'll give you a public equity story. So when I, when I worked at Bernstein, Alliance Bernstein, ticker AB, I became the director of research in January of 2007. Okay. And uh, there was a retreat for the top 50 executives or whatever they want to call it in the place in Westchester. Okay. And the meeting starts with the CEO and president of the company coming out with an animated PowerPoint and the presidential music. And what they're showing is the AB stock price going up. And it was the first time in my life, this is 2007, so I'm 53 years old now, so I'm 38, plus or minus. The first time in my life, I looked at the guy next to me and said, I got to sell immediately. Like this is the most, this is the most significant sell signal that's ever punched me in my eyes in my life. 
Okay. <laughs> so I, I, I sell this thing like full stop. Right. And I had been doing some work and I was, I was a semiconductor analyst. I just became the director of research. And so I was doing some work on a company that I didn't know much about. Kicker is for, it's still around. First Solar Corporation, FSLR. This was back in late 2006, early 7. I started, and they were a solar company, had no revenue, pre revenue, but they had a lot of contracts for material. In those days, solar was all three, five materials. If you're a periodic table expert, gallium arsenide, but it was converting to a two, six material, the second column on your periodic table, which was silicon germane. Anyway, make a long story short. I talked to a friend of mine there and he was telling me they were hiring a thousand employees. And I'm like, a thousand employees that doesn't have any revenue. So in a fit of stupidity and risk taking, I sold all the EP and bought all the first solar. And it went, it, I bought it at $28 per share and it rocketed up to let's say like a hundred six months later. And AB had a rule in those days that the analysts had a 12 month minimum holding period on their, on their stocks. And I, you know, I wanted to sell it. I was like, oh my God, this is like an irresponsible percentage of my net worth. The team's quadruple. Oh my God. So I go to the compliance officer and they say, you have to complain, claim financial hardship. They don't let me sell it. And because of this guy's obstinate lack of understanding that I didn't sell it, and the stock went to 225. <laughs> so on the 366th day, I sold it. It ended up going to like 325 and then it collapsed all the way down to, you know, 20 something. But, you know, but fortunately, because, because of, you know, in compliance, I made like a nine bagger over a year, <laughs> over a year on a stock. So, and That's I a was great panicking. Story. It was, yeah. So, but it was, it was a combination of the self signal of arrogance and hubris from the presidential music, music combined with, you know, a little bit of dangerous knowledge at the right time. So it was probably luck more than anything else, to be honest. <laughs> Well, Adam, it's been awesome, man. I want to thank you for coming on and, and talking to us. It's just you so much energy. It's incredible. It's like, hey, no, no. Thank, was, thanks for having me. A, People want to, you can reach out. I'm just Adam at TriberiaResearch.com. The idea behind Triberia is three variables, fundamentals, quant, and macro. And that's kind of my experience in, in analyzing equities. And we have a lot of clients who are our age. So we're happy to try to work with people who are interested in our work. Yeah, absolutely. And before we, we, we shut it down, I have a question I usually ask folks. Given the, the energy level, the fact that you're like sharp out old Wall Street guy, you know, this, this, you're digesting all of this information. You're trying to synthesize it and figure out what to do with it. Like, what do you do daily to kind of bring peace to this chaos of your life? Well, you know, I'm a lucky guy, right? I, 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 my best attribute is I love my wife who, and I have three kids and my kids are 19, 17, 15. And they know they're brutal with their feedback about my fashion and other decision-making. And I think that just keeps you, keeps you normal and grounded. I worry about the things that ever, everyone else does. Am I a good husband? Am I a good parent? Am I a good son? Am I getting fat? All that kind of <laughs> stuff, you know, the same, same things everyone else worries about. So I do, I do a pretty good job of, of like working out every day and I, I read a lot, but I do a pretty bad job of sleeping and that's the one thing I want to work on is like try to get a little more sleep in the, you know, so I get a little more, probably a little healthier mentally, but yeah, man, just normal stuff. Nothing, nothing out of control. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on. And for our listeners, don't forget to leave us a review and let us know the favorite part of today's episode. Adam, I hope you have an awesome holiday weekend and we'll have to do an update yeah, in six months and figure out what you got right, what you got wrong. Sure. I'd love to be well. God bless. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.